This is Dr. David Freeman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. Opiate, drug abuse, and addiction has become an urgent public health crisis. Today, we're delving into this topic with renowned addiction medicine expert, Dr. Drew, and that starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest starred in the hit reality series Celebrity Rehab. For over 25 years, he's hosted the nationally syndicated radio show Love Line, sharing the latest on love, sex, and relationships. He's a board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. Please welcome to the show, New York Times best-selling author and world-renowned addiction specialist, Dr. Drew Pinsky. Doc, how are you? Oh, pleasure having you on the show. You know, I remember seeing an interview where you shared a rather profound statistic. 90% of oral opiates in the world are consumed in America. And yeah. you mentioned, you said there's enough Vicodin on the market right now to give everyone a pill Every four hours for a month. Doc, out of 7.5 billion people on the planet, why are Americans so dependent on opiates? Well, that, that is the question, isn't it? I mean, what, have, what went wrong? Where did we jump off the rail? And I've been screaming about this for 15 years. Uh, the last, I'd say, five years, uh, from 2005 to 2010 was the last five years I was the director of a chemical dependency program. And I literally became burned out doing so because all I was doing was taking chronic pain patients who on the DL were also drinking and taking benzodiazepines and doing other things, coming in, taking them off opiates, and magically their pain went away, uh, treating them for addiction, and then only having them return to their pain specialist, get put back on opiates, and end up dead. It became a battle that uh, I just couldn't wage anymore, and so I took it to the public and started telling people that there was a tsunami afoot. I just keep using that same word. There's yeah. a tidal wave, a tsunami coming with this opiate addiction, and uh, that was the leading crest, and now we're in it. Here it is. And uh, why, why America? Yeah. It's complicated. And why, why do you, let me put it back on you, why, why do you think, and, and then I'll tell you what I think, having lived through it. I'd have to just go for the big pharma. I think it's maybe more profitable in America. Well, big pharma, you, listen, we're at a time now when physicians can't even take a pencil from big pharma. We, we, not, we can't even make eye contact with a pharmaceutical sales rep. That, that's the world we live in right now. That's, really? If you so much as allow a pharmaceutical rep in your office, you are ethically suspect. So that's over. And that's been over for a long time. What I'm sure, and Big Pharma, trust me, was a champion of all this. They were not unhappy with it, but they were right. not the problem. Here's how I experienced it as it unfolded. What happened was uh, there was a movement afoot that pain was being undertreated. And that movement developed a political and legal energy to it, to the point where, I don't know if you remember this, pain became, quote, the fifth vital sign. And people right. were being sanctioned and couldn't get their JCO certifications. They were being uh, intervened upon by the Department of Mental Health and various other uh, governing agencies if they didn't assess pain and then adequately treat pain to the patient's satisfaction. Now, when you're dealing with drug addicts, that is a very inappropriate way to treat those right. patients. We are still encumbered by this issue with the, put the phenomenon of patient satisfaction surveys. So my patients go to ERs, demand opioids, and when they're not satisfied, the doctors and the ERs lose their jobs. But that, that's the modern incarnation of this. Back in the 90s, it, was, it became actually a legal issue where a doctor would not only be accused of malpractice if he or she didn't treat pain adequately, they were accused of potentially of criminal action. So a giant philosophy developed, urged forward by these legal and regulational agencies, 
that pain is what the patient says it is. And the final incarnation of that were the pain mills down in Florida where you would walk into a clinic and it was literally like a Starbucks and the patients pointed at the combination of medicines that they wanted. They'd see the doctor and they'd walk out with those prescriptions. And man, my patients went nuts with that and most of them ended up dead. So really you're saying that because there's truly no objective proof of pain, you have to go by with what the patient is saying. That was that. And then yes. people began understanding that maybe there are better ways to approach this, and there's different circumstances of pain. Pain manifests differently in different uh, psychiatric and medical uh, contexts. Right. And yes, of course, we listen very carefully to what the patient says is pain, but my patients are always in pain. And in opioids, there's actually no good evidence that opiates and opioids are an effective treatment for chronic pain. They're designed for acute pain. And every physician has this same experience that I know I had, which is you go into medicine to help people, and one of the first things you learn how to do is to push a pain med and watch somebody go from misery to comfortable. It is compelling. It's what you are in this field for, but you have to understand to be more sophisticated about the way in which you utilize and deploy these substances. And things like a history of addiction, a family history of addiction, Momentum with substances, the co-prescribing of benzodiazepines, which now finally, yesterday, the I think the American Society of Addiction Medicine came out, or somebody came out with a warning about the co-prescribing of the benzodiazepine with the opiate, right. which is the deadly combination. And in my humble opinion, should essentially never be prescribed together, but if so, never longer than two weeks under carefully monitored circumstances. Right. When someone gets to that point where they're actually addicted, it's used to be into a category of someone with a lack of willpower, or maybe emotionally stressed or unstable. But in reality, isn't addiction actually classified as a disease? Oh, yeah. Well, it's a brain disorder. I mean, we know exactly where it occurs in the brain, and we know many of the mechanisms involved. And for people that have difficulty struggling with is it a disease or is not a disease, you need to be able to first define what a disease is. I, I urge you to know whether something is an umbrella or not an umbrella. Right. You need to define umbrella. So let's define disease. Well, disease is a complex relationship between the genetic substrate of the individual and its environment, the genetic environment interaction that results in an abnormal state of physiology in the brain that is reflected through signs and symptoms that progress called a natural history and for which there is a predictable response to treatment, an alteration of that natural history. That's disease. That's all disease. And addiction fits nicely into that category. Now, people get very hung up on, well, where's the, where the cancer? Where's the abnormal physiology? Well, it's in the brain. And just because you can't see it or cut it out does not make it any less powerful. In fact, it's more powerful than many other conditions like infection or cancer. And it does have effective treatments. The, the question then emerges whenever I'm explaining this to families is, well, if they knew they had this disease, why did they pick up the bottle in the first place? Right. And that's a more complicated question. And yeah, that really it, goes under the category, uh, and most people use substances to feel good or feel better. And most people these days are using them to feel better. And the reason they need to feel better is they have something called affect dysregulation. And it's a complicated topic. It's how do we develop the capacity as humans to feel okay in our own skin, moment to moment. That's affect regulation. And that is something that happens in an interpersonal context. It happens early in life. And because so many of our lives are disrupted early by many different phenomena, that landscape is never established. 
Now, whether something is the disease or not can only be compared against the possibility that it is a syndrome, like hypertension is a syndrome. Fibromyalgia right. is a syndrome. It probably has a series of different underlying pathophysiologies, and we sort of complex them under a constellation we call a syndrome. And that's a defensible thing. You could call addiction a syndrome, and I'd be willing to have that conversation. But it is, it is either a syndrome or a disease, and in either case, our job is to treat. Right. When you say syndrome, is there a genetic link, let's say, to drug or alcohol addiction, or is it situational, as you mentioned, stressors in life that are to blame? I treated 10,000 addicts and alcoholics in my career, and I can only think of five where I couldn't see a, a very clear familial link. Wow. So is there a genetic link? Of course. Of course. And just so, think about the way we respond to medication. <clears throat> I, mean, I I take opiates for, for surgeries. I feel like, hell, I hate them. My patients love them. I smoke pot, doesn't feel so good. My patients love it. Alcohol for me, take it or leave it. My patients can't stop. That is a wow. function of their genetics of their brain and how the brain is responding to these chemicals. The idea of there being good and bad chemicals, by the way, is a very flawed notion. It's just the context and the quality of the relationship with a particularly genetically endowed individual that determines how that relationship will progress. So if it's a genetic link that's to blame, is there some, like, delayed reaction that triggers this genetic predisposition? Yeah. I mean, if you remember in my definition of disease, it's a gene-environment interaction, right? And some people, the, the, the activation is merely caused by exposure. I'm a truck driver, and I'm taking amphetamines to stay awake. That's sufficient sometimes to trigger it. But as I explained a few minutes ago, the primary by overwhelming reason these days is affect dysregulation. And the fundamental phenomenon that's causing such dysregulation is trauma, childhood trauma. And so we have really gone through an I mean, in, in my world, I used to tell patients, I would say, look, if, if you have bad enough addiction, I'm not saying all addiction is caught, right. uh, triggered by trauma, though it, it often is. But if you have bad enough addiction that you need to see me in my clinic, you definitely have childhood trauma. That's a 100% probability. Wow. You know, I remember watching an interview with Richard Pryor, and he was asked when was the first time he knew he was addicted to cocaine, and he replied two seconds after the first snort, and that leads me to a question from a different perspective. There are people out there, Doc, that have acute injuries that need prescription pain meds, but they're afraid of getting addicted. If someone breaks a leg or has surgery, their doctor writes them a prescription, what's the risk of that leading to addiction? Well, look at your family history. If you have a first-degree relative with addiction or alcoholism, then there's about a 50% or so chance that you might have something like that. But most people that really have the genetic potential, they will say, they know, they will say things like, I have an addictive personality. Well, you don't have an addictive personality. You have an addictive genetically endowed brain. And so you're someone that if you think you have this potential, you've got to be really careful. And it, just using the opioid appropriately for acute pain exposure no, of course you should. I'm not into people suffering. Of course you should take the medicine. But after about a week, you should be thinking about stopping. After two weeks, you really got to stop and do not take home a bottle of 60 or 100. Nobody should be doing that, in fact. So it's the opposite effect. Some people need it and they're afraid that if they get one or two, even though they don't have a history, it's okay. There's no... Well, and, most, and believe me, the people that are that circumstance with pain meds magically aren't the ones that have the potential. <laughs> Right. Now, in my holistic practice, I've literally treated tens of thousands of patients suffering with pain. Since pain is a primary stepping stone for opiate addiction, yeah. would you recommend things, healthy alternatives like acupuncture, chiropractic, oh, massage? Oh, Could that 100%, help? Everything. 100%. I, I mean, 
We, we, it, it is a multimodality. Really, the problem with the patients that develop a problem with pain, and I sort of refer you over the, the pain management team at Stanford is uh, putting out a lot of good data. And, uh, and the, the reality is that it's, it's not the somatic experience of pain that is causing so much trouble with my patients. It's what we call the affective charge of pain. And that is primary medi- primarily mediated in the insular cortex, which mm-hmm. is a part of the brain that gives us the sort of, mm, let's call it the, the distress factor or the misery factor associated with pain. In my patients, the insular cortex is firing out of control. And the, the kinds of things that respond to regulating that region of the brain are not they're not the typical things we think of. So, yes, things like mindfulness, things like you know, neurobiofeedback, again, trauma management, all that stuff has a tremendous impact on the kinds of pain experiences that my patients develop. Great. Now, you know, you do a lot with addictions. There's many of them. There's sex, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. I'm curious, is there one that's more difficult to break away from, or are they all addictions the same? No, they're not all the same. I mean, the one that's most likely to kill you and has the highest recidivism is opiate, painkillers. And if, if it kills you, it's going to be because you took a prescription from a doctor with a benzodiazepine alongside it, and you took it maybe a little more, not much more than your, than your doctor prescribed, probably pretty much as prescribed, and you stop breathing, and that's that. So, yeah, opioids, particularly prescription opioids, uh, are the thing today. Though, though you know, now the doctors have cut off, we're sort of we're becoming aware that this is a problem. Now we're seeing the rise of heroin, because if you don't treat opiate addiction, that brain is so disturbed that they they have the brain itself feels like it's dying. It's desperate without the opiate, so we will find an opiate, and the cheapest, best alternative is heroin. Wow, I know. So we definitely have a huge problem. We've we've shared the statistics when it comes to opiate addiction. What will it take to fix the broken system? Besides you, I commend you for being on these shows. I think you're making a big difference. But what needs to take place? Well, all of this education, the government involved, multiple sectors. My everybody's got to line up and. And unfortunately, the, the, how we treat it, no, it's very costly and expensive, and uh, I, I'm not sure we've got it quite right yet. We're, we're, we've gone from one now to replacement therapies, harm avoidance therapies like buprenorphine and suboxone, which can save lives, but we're just sort of kicking the can down the road, as we often do in this country. Uh, and until we really get at the trauma, our dysfunctional childbearing practices and our family systems and the availability of these drugs, I, we, we've got to... We've got to attack it on all fronts. And I you know, think it's going to take a generation before before we uh, get out of this. I know with the unfortunate death of Prince, opiate addiction is a hot topic lately. As sad as it is to see iconic celebrities crash and burn, do you think the media attention raises awareness and maybe that's actually helping benefit the average person suffering from addiction? Uh, well, I don't know about the average person suffering from addiction. I, 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 we do see people coming to treatment that you know re- become aware as a result of watching some of these things right. on TV. We certainly found that with celebrity rehab, but uh, it's more the people that are getting into trouble that I think, or that uh, it affects more than anything. But let's remind ourselves, you know, this started with uh, Marilyn Monroe and Elvis, and it's come right on through. It's just getting more and more and more profound and more and more frequent. And uh, you know, every celebrity death uh, that's premature, you find opiates. 
Dr. Drew, thanks so much for being here today to discuss this very important topic. You sharing this information will hopefully make a profound difference in the lives of many of our listeners. To learn more, visit drdrew.com. There you're going to find many resources for substance abuse and counseling. Make sure to sign up for his newsletter so you can stay up to date with all the latest from Dr. Drew. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Drew. For our daily health tweets, follow me at Dr. David Friedman. Also, make sure to stay up to date with all of our latest health and wellness segments at toyourgoodhealthradio.com, iHeartRadio, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. While you're there, give us a review and share your suggestions for future shows. Stay tuned and stay well.